Hi, this is Brad Westwood. You're listening to Speak Your Peace. Speak Your Peace is a podcast where writers, historians, and contributors to Utah's history share their insights and discoveries. If there's one place, one podcast to get your Utah history fixed, this is the place. I want to thank uh, Sandra, Dr. Sandra G. Jones again for joining me today. Hello, Sandra. How are you? I'm so good, and it's so good to have you in our first half of Speak Your Peace. I have a few questions that I want to ask you, and they're not in chronological order, but I think the first question is so essential. I want to make sure you have an opportunity to share your thoughts and ideas about it. The 20th century story of the Utes is so vibrant. The contemporary story is uh, such a big deal and so often um, if neglected, if not entirely not included in the writings of our Native Americans in Utah. Tell me about the contemporary life. Right. Uh, what little bit there has been written. There's been one book about the 20th century for just, just the Southern Utes. Uh, and somebody, others that get to the 20th century and they just simply gloss over in five or six pages. And oh, by the way, this happened. But it's an absolutely fascinating story and every bit as interesting as the buckskins and horseback riding of the 19th and 18th century. Uh, among the things that will happen is a, a look at how the leaders do not give up control just because they're on reservations. They were suing the government in the 1890s and winning. Now, their money disappeared into Indian in, uh, individual Indian accounts, but they actually won a million or two dollars from the government back in 1890 for land that was taken. So they were already lobbying the Southern Utes especially, they were already lobbying. And they will be they will actually form a consortium of the three tribes, the three main tribes, in order to hire Ernest Wilkinson, who will later become president at BYU, but he was an attorney of Native American law. And he and Cohen will work together and he will represent that tribe for years and years, over decades in order to get reparations for the land that was taken and not paid for. You know, so these lawsuits, and they they learned how to fight in the courts where it's important to fight the white man, not on the battlefield anymore, because it's going to lose there. But they learned how to work in the courts. And Wilkinson and and his firm literally worked to change the law so that you could sue and Native American tribes all over the country began to have uh, lawsuits for the land that the government had taken from them and never paid for. Uh, so this is, you know, they're working in the courts now. They learn how. And so they're sending their, their people to school today to become lawyers, to have business management degrees. That's what they want to learn because um, over the 20th century, well, first they begin with, reorganization in the uh, 1930s during the Great Depression, one of the things they did was reorganize the tribes and create tribal governments. Now, they were puppeteered by the agents while they're learning how to navigate this new kind of political system, but they learn. The big, big key was when World War I, uh, well, World War I, a few youths will go and participate, but World War II you have a number of Utes who participate in the war. 
they go off the reservation. They see the world. But not only that, they've got uh, women and other men who leave the reservation to work in the war industries in California, Colorado, get degrees in nursing. They're in back east on the East Coast. They come back to the reservation and they've seen the world. They're the newly educated group. It'll be some of these people who will write the new constitutions. And when they get that uh, Indian land claims money, the Utes are the first to get Indian land claims through the courts. They blazed the way. And they had the largest settlement, over $30 million to be divided between the three tribes. Keeping in mind that Wilkinson was working on, uh, not on retainer, during the whole time that he's doing this work, all they did was kind of pay his expenses, and that was it. He does get a cut. Yeah, doesn't he negotiate for a – I mean, don't they eventually have to They have to settle with them? They settle, but it's a relatively small amount compared to what they, what they get. Um, but World War II was so dramatically a change, and it's at this point that uh, at the turn of the century – you had parents who didn't want their kids going to boarding school. They would hide them. They would be taken at gunpoint, but mm-hmm. they would get sick and die when they went to these mm-hmm. boarding schools. So they didn't want them to go. Well, now they want them educated. Now they want them to have schools. Now they start lobbying for schools. Um, one of the problems is the government is trying to cut back and save money after the war is over because they have big debts. And so they figured they'd get rid of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, not all the Indians and for themselves. It is a Utah senator, Arthur Watkins, who uh, leads the charge. He leads the crusade for terminating the Indians. All of the different tribes, mm-hmm. get a, you stop them getting all these handouts. And he firmly believes that this will be for their good. It isn't, ultimately. And he's kind of a guy with a black hat mm-hmm. for most Native Americans and especially for the Utes. Uh, but this will lead to issues uh, particularly pertinent on the Uinta uh, Basin, which we won't go into right now, having to do with um, throwing the baby out of the carriage so the wolves will get the mixed bloods and get getting rid of them so that they'll leave them alone, the, the main full, so-called full bloods. Um, but they they end up, after termination is squelched after 10 years, uh, they begin to have sovereignty given back to them. And they begin to have rights extended back to them. By this time, the governments have, have constitutions to, to explain how they're going to spend the money. It's going to be tribal money. They're not going to just hand it out to everybody. They're going to invest in tribal enterprises. Now, most of the first enterprises don't work. But by the, 20th, by the 21st century, uh, they're investing in, in things like oil and gas because they've been given back the right to control their own resources on their own reservation. They weren't doing that prior to the 1960s and 70s. So they're given the right to control their resources, whether it be big game or whether it be oil and gas. Some of the tribes learn how to take that and learn how to diversify. They get business managers. In some cases, they're white business managers that are very clever with how to do business. But they take this money, they've got it diversified, so they're newts are one of the wealthiest tribes in the country now. And yet, in 1960, they went bankrupt. So they've just had a complete turnaround. And these these tribes now are using their money, uh, the money from uh, real estate investments, construction companies, 
tourism. Once the gaming laws were passed, they've got uh, the two tribes have ca- casinos in Colorado. Mm-hmm. Utah, of course, has is one of two states that doesn't allow gambling, so they do not have it here. They'd like it if they could get it, but uh, Utah is not into gaming. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're using this money to help their tr- their their people. They've got language studies so people can relearn their language. And language is a key component Mm -hmm. to understanding culture because many things cannot be explained in English or Spanish. You have to say it in Ute in order to understand it. They have senior citizen programs. They have preschool programs. They have educational programs. They have cultural events. They have inter-reservation tribal events. They have sports that they encourage uh, they uh, encourage tra- so-called traditional arts and crafts. And I, I say so-called because, as I pointed out before, what is traditional depends on the time period. It's fluid, isn't it? I mean- right. They're, they're marvelous bead workers. And I learned how to do beading from my Ute friends while we were doing field work. I learned how to fringe a, a, a shawl like they wear to the Sundance from my friends. But that's... That's recent, meaning like in the 19th century Mm -hmm. that they got all that. It's not traditional. Traditional would be uh, porcupine quills, you know, something else, or or shells. Uh, But they encourage these uh, traditional arts and crafts that identify as native. Uh, They have museums. They have their own archives. Uh, every, Every one of the places have that. And they, they have such high regard for their veterans very high regard mm-hmm. for their veterans. And I have been able to see, uh, well, the Southern Utes have a whole major part of their, okay, they've all got websites for their tribes. Mm-hmm. And I've not been able to visit the new Veterans Center, uh, whole big memorial park. Uh, if you think they've got, I mean, they've got the memorial wall in Washington for Vietnam. The tribes have these big, beautiful memorials and the names of all of their veterans on it. And they, and they honor them at every event. They're always carrying the flag and opening the events. And so they're really pushing, improving life for their own people. They've got, if they want, they can have their own police uh, or they can use the BIA police. Uh, they've got their own fish and game. They've all got their water management. So they're, they are now a sovereign nation, dependent sovereign nation, mm-hmm. They actually work with the states on a state-to-state basis. So they totally different viewpoint. We don't think of reservations and Indians today. We still have this stereotype of the poverty. And there are some very poor people. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. And not all uh, reservations. Incredible struggles still. Right. And it should never be uh, underestimated or, or glossed over. I mean, it is a major uh, social ill of, of U- modern Utah. But, but I'm also very uh, uh, heartened by what you're saying about just the taking their own, uh, taking charge of their lives and their tribes and, and doing the things they've, they've accomplished. Now, Sandra, so much of this, I think, goes back to something I found fascinating in your book, and that is just the description of some of the Ute leaders, um, those that accomplished a great deal in negotiating. Do you, can you tell us about some specific Ute leaders? Well, I'd be remiss not to mention Ure. 
Uh, he's got a whole reservation named after him. Uh, he was actually, there are actually a lot of mixed bloods among the full blood youths, mixed with other native people. And uh, Ure actually was, but he was raised among, well, he associated predominantly with the Utes and was married into the Uncompagre Utes. Uh, but he was actually uh, probably part Apache, but he was sold into or given into indentures down in the Taos area in New Mexico. And he grew up among the Spanish, uh, probably sheep herding. He saw the Americans when they came in during the Spanish American or the Mexican American War. Uh, he saw the might of the American military and knew that you don't fight them because there's no way a native people are going to beat them. They're just overpowered. Uh, when he was about 17 or 18 years old, he ran away, went back to join, rejoin the Utes, uh, where some of his people were married in to the group and would rise to a leadership position. And he's an interesting guy. Some people have described him as something of an enforcer for another Ute leader, keeping people in line. Mm -hmm. But as a translator, he will come to the fore so that American officials begin to notice him. He speaks Spanish fluently. It's his, it has become his native tongue. Uh, and he told someone one time that he actually thought in Spanish. But he also learned some English as well. Now, uh, a Ute chief was often referred to as a talker because he's the one who negotiated between bands with non-Indians. And that's what Ure becomes by virtue of his being fluent, not only in the language, but in the culture of the Euro-Americans and the Hispanic Americans. He had also seen what would happen if you went to war with them. And in Colorado, uh, the governing state territorial leadership didn't want any Indians. They wanted to get rid of them all. And they had a campaign. There's actually a picture in the book showing this. It said the Utes must go, showing them being driven out of the of the territory at, at uh, gunpoint. And uh, he wanted to get rid of it. And he succeeded in provoking uh, hostilities with the Plains Indians and getting him out of the state and put on reservation somewhere else. But he couldn't get rid of the Utes. Because of Ure, he controlled many of the people and tamped down attempts to uh, want to go after. I mean, they, they were sometimes hard done by. There were things that were happening. But instead of uh, rising up and, and going in, he controlled his people uh, by pretty pretty tight fist from my understanding. And as a result, they couldn't get rid of them until uh, the incident up with uh, Nathan Meeker mm -hmm. up at the White River. And that in itself is just a wonderful story of things that happened. A tragedy, That's and, a, but such a impactful event historically as far as the interaction. Right. Uh, yeah, uh, it was, and some people call it the Meeker Massacre. Other people prefer to refer to it as the Meeker Incident. But Ure will literally be a go-between that gets the release of the captive women and helps to negotiate the whole thing done. While he was the leader, they're able to make reasonably favorable 
treaties. There isn't a whole lot you can do. The, the, the Americans are, are land grabbers. They're expansionists. You find gold, they're going to take your land. So the, what he could do was get the best deal possible, which is what he did. He got more and more frustrated with it. But ultimately, um, he dies shortly after. He dies in 1880, at which point the negotiators that are are handling the treaty, they kick out the White Rivers, throw them onto the Uinta Reservation, much to the chagrin of the Uinta Utes, who didn't want them because they were having enough trouble as it was. But then you had the Uncompagre who were supposed to have a, a treaty that put them by uh, Grand Junction. That was supposed to be where their reservation was. But then they found all sorts of loopholes and excuses to say, well, there's not enough farmland here, and we're going to give them their land in severalty. So um, let's see if there's some place over in Utah that would be better. So instead of Grand Junction, they stuck them on the Ure Reservation in Utah, which is just deadly desert. There was only 10 square miles. It was worth anything. But he was gone by then. And that's but the, that's that's Ure, the negotiator. Another leader you could speak of? Um, I would say uh, Chief Wakara or Walker, uh, he vacillates. I mean, he's all interested in commerce. He is an entrepreneur from mm-hmm. the beginning. He charges tolls on the, on the trails for you to pass unmolested, a little bit of a, of a uh, protection racket. But then <laughs> so did other Utes. He's not the only one, but he mm-hmm. had it down to a science. And several different travelers talk about him coming in. Uh, but he began to exploit the trails himself he became friends with some of the traders who, with the fur trade dying, went started going down into California. And many of these fur traders started uh, going down to California, stealing horses, driving them back up the trails, and selling, selling them to them. the immigrants, yeah. Santa Fe, the... Oregon, Mormon trails. Mm-hmm. And so he started going along with them. And he said, what a good idea. So he starts doing his own. He beca- He's in the, the California history books as the greatest horse thief in California history as he stole these horses and would drive them up the Spanish trail where he would uh, distribute them or s- take them up to several trading posts and sell them. He was so, meeting a viable need on the, on those trails. With absolutely. All the coming. Yeah, west. absolutely. But he vacillated between welcoming the Mormons. He literally went up. They were sending people down to settle in Utah Valley, but he went to Brigham Young and they couldn't trade up in Salt Lake Valley very well because the Shoshone were jealous of this. is their territory up here. And so he said, well, why didn't you come down and do a settlement down in where I'm at, San Pete Valley? And they said, okay, yes, absolutely. And they jumped right on that. And sure enough, they go down, and this is where they establish Manti. And so he's perfectly happy to have them come. In the wintertime, they have a measles outbreak. They bring in the elders to to give their children blessings, to try to heal them. They're great friends at this point. Early on. Just the opposite is going on up in Utah Valley uh, where you have conflict that breaks out when uh, some young men in the fort murder an elder from the Ute tribe and then try to hide the body by cutting him open and filling him full of rocks rocks and throwing him in the the river. river. And then... The, the settlers refused to pay reparation. That's what you're supposed to do is either pay reparation or give us the killers. 
they wouldn't do either one. Well, and, and I think that's part of what your book does so well is it it offers that full cultural, historical, religious, social context that makes you understand the the Native American side of so much of what we read about in our settler colonist history. Right. Well, uh, ultimately, Brigham Young finds out what happened. Three, I mean, they send the militia down. Uh, they have the Provo War. It's disastrous, uh, a, a disastrous uh, fight for the Native people. And uh, three years later, he finds out from somebody what actually happened. He said, if I had known, I would never have sent them down to do what they did. But he didn't know. But this will initiate uh, a lot of antagonism by Utes against the Mormon settlers, unfortunately. But Wakara vacillates between let's drive them out, they're going to cause a problem, and let's have them come in because that'll be a place for me to trade. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and so he goes back and forth in the Walker War that is named for him. He wasn't even part of, actually. He tried to settle it down, and he left for the winter. When he came back, he negotiated uh, back out and got a lot of gifts out of it. But by this time, there's a lot of antagonism. But, you know, even though ultimately the Latter-day Saint settlers will take over the land and they'll ultimately be relocated out to Uinta Basin. Um, for the first 20 years, the Native American people, the, both the Paiutes and the Goshutes and the Shoshone and the Utes, recognize that the Mormons are different than the Americans. They are two separate tribes. Mm -hmm. You have the Mormonese. The Mormonese and the... Medicatsi. The Medicatsi, yep. the Americans. Well, and, and the church uh, tried to develop that. They oh, were yeah. trying really hard to, say, align with us, which, of course, yes. Native Americans would see, okay, you want to align with us? Uh, great. We do this with other tribes. We'll do it with you. Right. It was to their benefit until they end up getting relocated yeah, the uh, lands yeah. and their right. Uh, all the their opportunities to live their lives are completely cut off. From... Right. I mean, it's just gone. There mm -hmm. is no way you can have a farming, expanding people and a nomadic people that are are dependent on the resources. And I mean, everything, including um, they had uh, a, a situation in about fifty. I believe it was eighteen fifty six. Uh, when there was a hard winter and a drought, followed by a cricket infestation that destroyed the crops. And the settlers are like, what do we do now? And so they went down. I literally, they would call uh, priesthood quorums to go down and spend six weeks fishing in Utah Lake, which was filled with fish. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were fishing it out. Yeah, they did, you know? actually, didn't they? I mean, by the time of the Utah War and the resettlement in Provo... In the 1850s, didn't they pretty well clean well, out the fish in that area? At that there were time? a lot of fish. I mean, so many fish that you could, uh, they had fish festivals there, the Utes. And you could literally stand in the in the river and you with your hands flip the fish out. They were so thick as they swarmed up the river to spawn. Uh, but they somebody came up with the bright idea of introducing catfish and draining the swamps to build farmland. And it destroyed the ecology of the area and of the 12 uh, native fish that they had in the lake and in the rivers there. Uh, th they're all gone but three. 
and those three are endangered, like the June sucker. Mm -hmm. Wow. So, Sandra, thank you for talking about these leaders. I think um, I'm just going to close by asking our readers, our listeners, really pick up this book, Being and Becoming You, the story of an American Indian people by Dr. Sandra G. Jones. Sandra, thank you so much for being on Speak Your Peace. You're welcome. It was fun. I enjoy talking. I just played enjoy talking about the Utes. <laughs> thank you so much for being with us. Um, if there is any place that you want to get your history fixed, this is the place. Thank you so much for joining me and my, my guest, Sandra Jones, uh, for our podcast, Speak Your Peace. Uh, we uh, thank uh, our studio underground here in Salt Lake City. I want to thank Connor Sorensen from Studio Underground, who is our sound engineer and our post-production editor. The past is never truly in the past. It's all around us. It informs us. It speaks to both our shared and our separate identities. We hope that you'll come back to listen to any our future podcasts related to Utah's history. I'm Brad Westwood, and thank you again for listening to Speak Your Peace. Thank you.